I'm Carrie Miller. Each week, I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week, we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now, you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode, or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is the Thread Book Hour. Today, telling the complicated truth about a long marriage. I'm going to the wedding of a friend's daughter soon, and I know that as we, their friends and family, witness this young couple say their vows, I'll be thinking about all of the unknowns ahead for them, the leap that they're taking with such confidence and optimism. What if we had some portal into the future on that day that we were joined in marriage? In her new memoir about marriage, Danny Shapiro asks, what must we summon and continue to summon in order to form ourselves toward, against, alongside another person for the duration? And that is the essential question, isn't it? And it's where we'll begin our conversation. Danny Shapiro's other work includes devotion and still writing, and her new memoir is titled Hourglass, Time, Memory, and Marriage. Welcome. Good to have you here. Great to be here. So I've been married longer than you have, and I still don't think I have the answer to that question that you ask about what we're summoning. Maybe maybe we never do have the answer. Maybe that's the the mystery and to some degree the fun of marriage. Yeah, I love that you zeroed in on a passage that is perhaps like the closest thing to a mission statement that I had in a way of, you know, what does it take? What does it mean to walk alongside someone for the duration in that way? Um, when I was writing Hourglass, I thought of it as an inquiry. I actually wanted the subtitle to be Inquiry, and nobody would let me do that because it sounded too scientific. I can see why. But I, yeah, me too. But I was sort of attached to it. But the, um, the inquiry into that question was what I was going for. It wasn't about trying to find answers so much as it was to really live inside that question, um, using my own 18-year marriage as... Um, a way of doing that. You know, it occurs to me that if we didn't marry with all this idealism and naivete, I don't know how we, I, A, I don't know how we would ever answer that question that you've asked, and B, how we'd get through the first few years. You need that kind of naivete and idealism, don't you? Or that, that innocence, that happily ever after, everything about, I look at, I look at young brides uh, sometimes now, and they, like I, um, are so focused on the wedding itself, right? You know the the flowers, the perfection of the 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 table arrangement, the uh, the dress, of course, the invitation, all of those details. And you know, I find myself wanting to say to them, "It's a day. It's and the day is going to be over, and there you're going to be. You're going to be with this person, and you can't know what it's going to be to go through all of life's ups and downs with that person." So that sense of, um, you know, standing, you know, under the chuppah or in front of the priest or wherever, wherever um, they, you know, we happen to be, we don't have a crystal ball. But we can be sure that we're going to go through stuff if we stay married. 
we can be sure that, in fact, in the fullness of time, there's going to be loss. I mean, if things go the way that they ought to go, uh, we're going to lose parents. We're going to lose each other's parents. We're going to watch each other go through grief. We don't know how this person's going to be going through grief or loss or or less ordinary, um, you know, more painful things that happen sometimes, you know, to, to people as they embark on their lives together. So really, in a way, you know, the question, who who are you? Who are you going to become? I guess that was one of the most fundamental questions that I had in this inquiry is, we grow at different rates. I mean, we de facto, we must grow at different rates. So you have two people who are growing alongside each other, but not necessarily at the same rate. You know, hearing you talk about the loss and the good times, I think there's a tendency to believe we'll really be tested and we'll really know each other in the loss. But I think it's really who you are in that marriage, in the good times, when things are easy and you let your guard down a little bit. I mean, then the it seems like the fabric of then, – then I think to some degree character is required. Does that make sense when it's easy? Yeah, it does. You I know mean, what I – yeah. Sure, because there's also – you know, when it's easy, there's the potential for coasting. Exactly. And there's the potential for taking for granted and there's the potential for not actually really seeing the other person anymore. Right. Uh, all those things. But, you know, somebody said to me uh, fairly recently – it was a young woman – she said, I feel like Hourglass is a book that every mother of a bride should give it give to her daughter. And I loved that so much because it was very – to me, it meant that the book has a lot of hope in it, but it's real. And I think that that's why she was saying that, the idea of this is um, a window into a real marriage. I mean, that's what I was interested in doing. I wanted to write about marriage from the place of being in really a pretty good marriage, mm. um, but also with all of the complexity that goes along with that, because the idea that, you know, that there's such a thing as happily ever after, or, you know, sailing into the sunset, or all of the kind of ways that culture romanticizes uh, what it is, I think actually makes people embark on it with a whole lot of fantasy and um, expectations that aren't uh, realistic. Do you think it matters that you were 35 and your husband was 41? Yeah, I think it mattered enormously in, 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 in what our way, case. Though? In our case. I mean, not for everybody. I think there are people who are m a lot more mature than I was when I was younger uh, who can make better decisions. I We each had histories. And I think those histories have over time helped each of us at moments where things were maybe not so easy. Um, I could look back at my own romantic history and think, well, you know, I was with that guy who had that thing, um, but, you know, I was miserable. So maybe that thing that I think I want <laughs> is not actually what's going to make me happy. <laughs> I love that because there are, there are, I think, some people that aren't as secure as you are who would who would think it was dangerous to look back into romantic history and say, but it could have been that. But you take a very practical view of that. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the more uh, risky moments in writing the book was when I uh, actually kind of open my old journals and pretty much go through my romantic history in some way, like this blur of boys when I was a teenager, 
you know, it's the strangest thing in the world to like reread your old journals and not even like, who was Matt? <laughs> <laughs> right. Who was William? Who are these people? Um, but then, you know, moving further into adult life and that sense of, you know, before I met my husband, in the year before I met him, um, I was fixed up with, it was almost karmic. I was fixed up with man after man who had one extraordinary quality. You know, like one was really handsome and one was really wealthy and one was brilliant and one was an extraordinary artist. Um, and if I had been in a place in my life where what I was doing was making choices based on, you know, what, what somebody appeared to be like on paper, you know, paper is not like what you're sleeping next to at night. And paper is not what you're waking up to in the morning. Um, and I really had come, I think, being, I was 34 when I met my husband, being at being that age and having that knowledge was something that I think allowed me to see him and see him for who he was when I met him. Boy, it's, that's so wise. I, I, this is why it always amazes me that people... Marry college sweethearts. Because I, I think so much of it is luck. When that works out, I think that's it's when absolutely it works out. luck. Yeah. I mean, we don't... You have no real idea about who you're going to be in the world. College is a, a bubble. Right. And the fact that you feel like you know somebody well enough to sign on for the next 60 years out of college is just has always kind of blown my mind. Yeah, I mean, you can barely like choose your major when you're that age. Yeah. Um, and, and there's such a sense, I mean, I think back at, uh, at myself, um, about myself at that age, uh, which I do a lot in the book. I mean, a lot of the conversation around Hourglass has been that it's about marriage, and it is, but it's also really about meeting my younger self through time, both the desire to do that and the impossibility of that in certain ways. But when I think of myself at 17 or at 23 and the choices that I was making and what I valued and what I thought was important and who I thought I wanted to be, every it's sort of like a be careful what you wish for. Like every single uh, way that I thought I wanted to live when I was that age, I would have sold myself so short. But again, it had to do with fantasy. It had to do with um, a dearth of role models at that point in my life of, you know, and, and of a lack of experience. And over time, um, I, I just learned so much more about myself. And eventually, the decisions that I made became decisions that had to do with um, what was really going to fulfill me, make me content, make me happy. I mean, the other part of that of what you're describing, as you mature, I think you push away a little bit about what the culture and your environment and your friends who are deeply influential, you know, in your teens and your 20s, believe is just kind of what the culture tells you is the thing you should want. And when you get into your 30s, you push some of that away. Right. And g gain more confidence in your own internal compass. Right, absolutely. And um, and you're leaving out parents. Absolutely. And, and you know, and family influence. And, right. you know, this is the That's kind right. of person you're supposed to be. This is who you're supposed to grow up to become. And I had a huge amount of that that I really had to um, slough off over time. So um, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, your parents were in an unhappy marriage. Your father was killed when you were pretty young in a car accident. 
you had, what should we say, a volatile relationship with your mother? How that, would you describe that, it? That, that would be fair. <laughs> it was it was extremely contentious. It was it was a very painful relationship, um, and uh, she was someone who um, didn't really have much in the way of a maternal uh, instinct and was very competitive with me. Which now, as a mother myself, is so baffling to me how a parent could ever be competitive with a child. But she was, and and my parents. I mean, my father was an Orthodox Jew, and my mother wasn't. Um, but which is a whole other story. Um, but they did end up together. But they fought over how to raise me always. And so I was supposed to grow up and be a good Orthodox Jewish girl. I was never going to do that. Um, I think I, if I could have articulated that when I was ten, I would have said, "No, no, no, no. That's not. That's not going to be my my path." I can save you all the arguments. That's right. Not like where just I'm simply not going to happen. Mom and dad. Exactly. Um, but there, I had a lot of mixed messages from them. Um, you know, my father wanted me to grow up and be a good Orthodox, you know, girl and have you know twenty children and um, and and live that life. Probably not work um, and very very traditional. And my mother, uh, I think, wanted me to have a kind of glamorous life and um, you know be the pretty girl and and you know marry a rich husband. I mean, to be blunt, I think that's pretty much what she wanted for me. And I didn't want that either. I didn't want. I didn't want either of those things, which were completely at odds with each other. <laughs> so I had to really sort out. I had. I mean, one great piece of luck for me was that I had had a babysitter when I was a kid who had gone to Sarah Lawrence College, which was not a school that was on anybody's radar where I grew up. And I liked the babysitter, so I thought. I should go to Sarah Lawrence College. <laughs> and then I got to Sarah Lawrence College, and there were writers there. Grace Paley was teaching there, and E.L. Doctorow was teaching there, and there were all sorts of extraordinary people. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, like these books that I've read my whole life and, you know, like under the covers with a flashlight, somebody wrote them. You know, somebody spent their lives being a writer. And I really believe that becoming a writer saved my life and gave me a sense of um, direction, purpose. I, I was lucky to find the thing that I could do in my life that I had a gift to be able mm -hmm. to do. And mm -hmm. that also allowed me to get to know myself because um, Joan Didion once wrote, um, if I had even the remotest access to my own conscious mind, I never would have become a writer. I write in order to understand what it is that's going on inside of me. And that is completely true for me. So all of that Whatever self-knowledge I started to develop, I think I started to develop by putting pen to page. Um, Joan Didion also wrote something that I wanted to ask you about, about marriage in her memoir, The Year of Magical Thinking. She says, I did not always think he was right, nor did he always think I was right, but we were each the person the other trusted. It, it sounds like you examined that to some degree and taking on the memoir and then bringing your husband in to listen to the pages as they came out. Yes? Yeah, I love that. You know, and in thinking about Didion, um, there was, you know, there was this concern as I started writing the book um, about whether in some way, even if I really tried not to, that I would in some way betray my husband or I'd be betray my marriage by writing about my marriage. Who writes about their marriage? People write about their marriages after their marriages are over. You know, they write from a place of, like, the rearview mirror. I wanted to write 
from inside of it, and I wanted to try to tell the truth of it without betraying it. And some, I, I came across something that Didion had said because people were looking at me funny, you know, the entire time I was writing the book. You mean like, when you would talk about what you were doing? Yeah, yeah. No. I mean, just like a sense of a, a sense of concern about it, or wow, that's really going too far in some way. And I remembered um, one of Didion's first essays, like real literary essays. I think it was for the New York Review. It was about a subject, a journalistic subject. But in the middle of this essay, uh, there is the line, we are in, I'm going to just say it's Honolulu, it might not be, but we are in Honolulu in lieu of getting a divorce. There's that line, that famous line. And when they got back to New York and the piece had pu- was published, friends would go up to John, John Gregory Dunn, and they would say, is that okay with you? Are you all right with that? And his response was, all right with that. I babysat Quintana so that she could write it. I uh, went to the telex office and, you know, mailed it, you know, or sent it in for her. I edited it. And there was such a sense of the being in it together mm-hmm. that I recognized when I read that in her. And, um, you know, when, when my husband Michael and I were first married, people would say, you know, you're two writers. Aren't you competitive with each other? And we would just both be so baffled by that because it felt to me like, and to him, like our victories were each other's victories and our defeats were each other's defeats and that we were just really in this together. And so when I was writing and I was in this process, which was has always been my process of reading to him at the end of the day, the process was not sitting there and reading and about you know, reading about my marriage, you know, like, <laughs> and then sitting there discussing and sort of digesting and, you know, uh, you know, just putting under a microscope our marriage. It was a literary endeavor. He was trying to help me make the best book that I could make. And he was more interested in doing that than having it be flattering. And that was enormous permission. And also so much of what I love about about us. It's one of the best parts of us and the strongest parts of us is that des- desire that we each have for each other in that way. So there were moments where he would, I mean, there was, there were certainly a couple of moments where he would say, that sentence, can you imagine that sentence pulled out and used as a pull quote? That's going to be, and, and you know it will be. And I would look at the sentence and think, yeah, you're absolutely right. And just with, with no trouble at all, let go of it. Uh, I was always aware as I was writing it, that if there was anything in it that he really didn't want me to write, I wouldn't have. And if he hadn't wanted me to write the book, I wouldn't have. But the thing that I take away from that anecdote that you told about Joan Didion and her husband is also we're we're still in it together and we're not afraid to name some of the – some of what happens in any long marriage because we don't think naming it necessarily means it wrecks it, right? Well, perhaps the opposite. Perhaps right. naming it is is liberating in some way. I mean, there was a moment where there was a, a passage that I had written that I knew or I felt was particularly tough. And instead of our usual routine, which is that he'd come up to my office at the end of the day and sit in my chair and I would sit on the chaise and I would read to him. Instead of that, we were going somewhere in the car. And I, I took the pages with me uh, in the car. Because if you're in a car driving along, no one's going anywhere, <laughs> presumably. Uh-huh. And I read them to him. He was driving and I read them to him. And 
he paused after I finished and he said, did you think that was going to upset me? And I said, well, I thought it might. And he paused again and he said, but it's true. And that kind of, uh, I don't know whether it's comfort or um, desire to, to name, to say, this is what it is. I think that's actually a strengthening mm. thing. Um, I mean, the unsaid gathers a whole lot of power and secrets are corrosive and anything that in a long relationship kind of remains, I mean, every couple has the stuff like, oh, here's our, here's our quicksand. We just, you know, we, we've just been walking along, everything's been fine and suddenly, ooh, how did we get here? We're in this place. Maybe every couple has one or two or three of those spots that are like really just, okay, now do, now what do we do? Um, I guess we're going here now. I guess we're going to go. It's that, that Wendell Berry passage um, late in the book. It's from a, a poem of his, but he, he talks about finding the strength to go back into the dark wood together. Mm-hmm. So every couple has its dark wood, but better to better to name it, I think. Yeah, I I really like the imagery of the quicksand because I think you get to a place in a longer marriage where if one of you steps off the the walkway and one foot slips into the, there's a moment to decide how far you're both going to let yourselves slip into the quicksand, you know? And you get, I feel like, you get better and better at pulling back, pulling each other back a little bit and not letting that quicksand be so all-encompassing as it felt like it was in the early years for a lot of couples. Yeah, so true. I mean, I think that that, that joint language and that, 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 that joint knowledge, recognition, right? recognition yeah. like I, you know, my husband knows my weak points, character flaws, you know, places that... Uh, you know, just our our, our our frailties of mine as a human being, and I know his. Um, and so, yeah, that that I, I can think certainly of moments in early years where something like that would come up and there would be this feeling of, uh-oh, this is... But, you know, we, we had something early in our marriage that I think actually did um, solidify that sense of each other in a certain way, which is that our son, when he was a mm-hmm. baby, was very sick. And... We had a long period of time, certainly it felt very long, it was about a year in terms of the real crisis, of not knowing if he was going to survive. And, and this is what you wrote about in slow motion? No. no what, I, wrote, what was, I, I, did, I wrote about it in devotion. Devotion. Um, slow motion okay. was a period of time in my life that was prior to marriage and, 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 and family. Um, I wasn't a mother yet. But, and I did write it in slow in, – in, I wrote about it in devotion, but I also – revisited it briefly in Hourglass in a very particular way. And that way was that the day that that our son was diagnosed, he had a rare seizure disorder. Uh, seven out of a million babies are stricken with it, and a very, very small percentage of those end up okay. So we were looking at terrible odds. And the because it's rare, the medication for it is experimental. There are several different courses of action. You can't know which is the best, and you have to commit to one. Um, we committed to a very expen- experimental course involved involving getting medication that wasn't FDA approved. It had to be flown in from either Mexico or Canada. And I remember, and this is what I wrote about in Hourglass, the, the day that our son was diagnosed, we were driving. We lived in Brooklyn, and the doctor's office was in Manhattan. 
And we were driving back across the Brooklyn Bridge. Our son was in the back seat. And the thought that I had, and it was almost like this clinical thought, like I had read it in a research paper somewhere, marriages often don't survive something like this. I mean, the the primary and agonizing thought is we may lose our child. The secondary thought was, and I may lose my marriage. And, I, you know, we just may lose everything. The comparison losing my marriage to losing my child in that moment was um, I would have, if I had to make a choice, I would have chosen to let go of the marriage right. and save the child, of course. But that period of time when Jacob, our son, was sick, we were very, very good to each other. And it could have been otherwise. Because you specifically spoke that and said, this is dangerous territory here. We, didn't, we, never, be, we never had to speak it. We just it. did it. We just did it. Um, I had noticed very early on these... Um, these tiny little seizures that didn't even look like seizures. I'm an extremely hypervigilant person, and I used to hate that about myself. And ever since then, I've been nothing but grateful for it because um, it did cause us to get really early intervention, and it did save his life. But my husband would be the first person to say, you saved his life. And for me, at that time, I was filled with maternal guilt was it something I did? Could I have fixed it? You know, was it something I ate when I was pregnant? Whatever. You know, mothers do that. We mm-hmm. do that more than fathers do that, I think, to generalize. That sense of if something's wrong with our child, there's some way that it's our fault or that we can fix it. And he just cut through that for me uh, again and again and again. And also, I was so conscious of how much he loved that child and how terrifying this was for him as well. So we just were good to each other. And we were in a situation where we had to, the experimental medication had to be dosed out in even, in even doses 24 hours a day around the clock. Wow. So we were having to wake up a sleeping infant, a sick sleeping infant. We were having to set the alarm and one of us wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, making sure he got every drop of the medication. So the level of stress, when I look back on it now, was so profound but we were kind to each other, and it's like we battened down the hatches. Mm-hmm. It was just us. Family members were not necessarily so terrific during that moment. Um, I had to stop speaking to my mother for a period of time because she was adding so much stress to the situation. Friends, well-meaning friends would, you know, say, oh, I talked to a pediatrician friend. This is so terrible. You know, like there, there, were, there were so many, you know, there's tone deafness. People don't know what to do when you're in a situation like that. I totally get it. But we were in it together, and that gave us a kind of very early in our relationship. Because we we met. Seven months later, we got married. And a year and a half later, we had a baby. And we barely knew each other. There was a lot of luck Yeah, there was a tremendous amount of luck. You chose well. Yeah. But as we said at the beginning, you chose with maturity and a lot of self-awareness and knowledge. Right too, right? Yeah. Luck, because no matter what, it can still go off the rails. (laughs) Right. But we did both come to it with a lot of um, awareness of of the other person. And of, of, I'm not even going to say what we were looking for, because I don't think either of us were looking for anything in particular. Maybe that was a big part of the change. It wasn't, I didn't have a checklist. And he didn't have a checklist. It was just this sense of, oh, there you are. Okay, let's go. You're listening to a Thread Book Hour conversation with writer Danny Shapiro. 
Her work includes devotion and still writing, and her new memoir is titled Hourglass, Time, Memory, and Marriage. You knew where I was going with this. Would you read a little bit from... And, and um, perhaps you'd give us a little context for for this part of it. Yeah, this this passage, which comes uh, fairly fairly far into the book, um, is really in um, a part of the book where I'm thinking about the idea of what it means to uh, make mistakes in life. And there's a moment before this, uh, um, before, no, actually it's in this passage I'm going to read you, but the idea of mistakes and, um, and taking care. Uh, there's a refrain in the passage before this, which is, um, I'm hearing a voice in my head that says, be careful, be careful as you walk down the street. Uh, be careful as that man flirts with you at a party. Be careful uh, when you have that glass of wine and you're driving home. Be careful. Um, the stumbles and falls, the lapses in judgment, the near misses, the could-haves. I've become convinced that our lives are shaped less by the mistakes we make than when we make them. There is less elasticity now, less time to bounce back. And so I heed the urgent whisper and move with greater and greater deliberation. I hold my life with M carefully in my hands, like the faience pottery we brought back from our honeymoon long ago. We are delicate. We are beautiful. We are not new. We must be handled with care. I really love that passage because I think... We often think of fragility being aligned with newness. It's a new relationship. It's fragile. And what you're really saying there is the disappointments, the experiences of the marriage can also introduce a kind of fragility in in a way that I'd never really thought about before. Mm. Yeah, I remember an... an, an early reader of the manuscript saying to me about that passage, but long marriages are made of this strong stuff. You're like, you're, you're, you're strong and more solid together. I don't mean fragility as the opposite of strength. Um, I think that there can be a very beautiful kind of strength in the recognition of fragility, mm-hmm. in the idea that um, when I say, you know, we are fragile, I don't mean fragile in the sense that our relationship could just crumble. I mean, the fragility of life itself at a certain point, the sense that um, that that things can and do happen, that um, that that not newness and that 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 fragility is beautiful and and that the sense of handling it with care is an, an awareness of that, you know, that it's not something that, you know, to go back to the the thing that you said about um, the good times mm-hmm. It's not about it being um, something that can just be taken for granted because it's always been there, and therefore it will just continue in that way. I think there's a danger in that kind of – I think that's hubris. That's an interesting word to choose for that. Why? The hubris of the assumption that because it has been so, it will continue to be so. The hubris and the assumption that all will be well – I mean, I, maybe that's just the, you know, the, neuro, the neurotic, <laughs> the neurotic Jewish girl in me. But you know, the, the sense of um, uh, 
the, the awareness that there always is. I mean, early in Hourglass, there's a moment where I quote the great one of my favorite poems. I could probably recite the whole thing by heart, but it's the the Polish Nobel laureate uh, Wisława Szymborska, and she has this poem titled "Could Have," and it begins: "It could have happened. It had to happen." It might have happened. It had to happen. It happened nearer, farther off. It happened, but not to you. You were saved because you were the first. You were saved because you were the last. It goes on, and it contemplates the nature of luck. And um, and I use it as a as a when I teach writing often to have students write about what could have happened because there's such richness in that territory. But um, I'm someone who has always been aware, sometimes more, sometimes less, but of the the sense that, you know, there's another shoe and it, it, it can drop. And so I look at people who don't think that way, and I guess I think a little bit, not in a judgy way, but just I think a little bit hubris, you know, that, that to, to, to not know that there is a fragility in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that fragility is what, for me, pushes me to a place of wanting to live life to its absolute fullest, to... Um, I hate wasting time, you know, I hate, I'm, like when I do it to myself, you know, when I just spend hours online for no reason and I look up and I think, what just happened? <laughs> or I'm somewhere and I don't have a great book to read. Or I'm spending time with someone um, who, you know, doesn't feed me in some way or who I don't feed in some way. Like those to me are, you know, th- those are missed opportunities to do something that is, um, you know, sort of more of value in some way. Um and it comes from that place, I think, in me, of feeling like, how much time do we have? There's a moment in Hourglass where I have an 80-year-old Buddhist friend. I don't name her in the book because I don't name anybody in the book. Mm-hmm. I didn't want a lot of names, but it's uh, the great Buddhist um, teacher, Sylvia Borstein. And Sylvia um, said to me at some point, um, the future, even five minutes from now, is an actuarial guess. Um, now, I find that comforting. Do you? <laughs> Well, it depends on how you sit with it. If you sit with it in a certain way, you know, we would never get out of bed in the morning, right? Because it would be like, well, which way do I turn down the street? You know, which 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 car do I get into? Which flight do I take? You know, it could be an absolutely paralyzing notion. But it can also be a notion that just kind of expands the present in a certain way, because there's a deep awareness, a Buddhist awareness, I guess, but, you know, that that's what we've got. You know, I was thinking as you were describing this idea of hubris, there is also a protective quality to that. And I think I live in the different way that that you're describing than you live. I don't wait for the next shoe to drop. And part of that, you're right, is a kind of confidence and hubris that we'll be able to handle, I'll be able to handle it, we'll be able to handle it. I think I believe that believe too, though. That, no, I do clearly. believe I do believe that. Um, I'm just remembering a family I grew up with when I was a kid who, uh, they were like this golden family. Are these the Aldens or what? what? The, yes. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the, I call him, I call them the Adlers. The it's Adlers. Not, not their real name. That's not, okay. But, but um, they... They would respond. They went to Antigua every Christmas, and nice. I, I nice. And I remember once saying to one of the sons, um, "So are you going to Antigua in in December?" 
And his response was, does, does the sun rise in the east and set in the west? <laughs> and I was too young to really kind of understand that for what it was, but I, it stayed with me. Uh, just that, wow, that, that's, I guess it's, let's move away from hubris. Maybe it's certainty. Yeah. A kind of certainty yeah. that it will always be like this. I don't, I don't want to have that certainty because that doesn't feel real to me. Um, but it wasn't certain for them either, was it? No, it absolutely wasn't certain for them. That family has had more tragedy in it, uh, just heaping buckets of tragedy than almost any family that I know. Um, and that's also why it's haunted me for all these years, because it's such a sense of they did not see that coming. They didn't see, I mean, you couldn't have seen it coming, but they didn't have, there was a, a, a brittleness to, you know, their capacity to handle any of it because it this wasn't supposed to happen to them. I guess this is one of the things that I think of about this is that I have never been someone who thought, like, why me about anything? Mm -hmm. When my parents were in a car accident and my father died and I was young and it was and I was their only child and my mother was very badly injured, I never once thought, like, why us? Um, I mean, why not us? Why not anybody? So it, 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 that sense of specialness or being able to be, you know, sort of considered um, apart from the things that impact other people, that I've never felt. But, but the certainty, the, the, what you're describing, what you're describing about how you feel about your marriage, or what, I, I feel the same way. I feel like, bring it on. There's, no, there's nothing we can't handle. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that I think that it's not going to come at us. Right. Yeah. And when I said that, I, I, I don't know that there's nothing that we can't handle. I feel like there's maybe nothing I can't handle. You know what that is. That's complete. Um, I've never really had tragedy happen to me. So I'm unknowing in this. But you know, that I might feel quite different if I had been through what you've been through. Well, and I might feel quite different if I had been through different things or more. Right. I mean, I don't know what would have happened to us if our son hadn't survived. Right. He thrived. You know, he's this fantastic young man. I don't know what would have happened if we had ended up many of the children who survive but are um, compromised by the condition he had and end up brain damaged and unable to function. What would that have done to our marriage? What would that have done to our lives? I have no idea. Um, all I know is, is you know what what we've been through. But you know, there there was a moment early in the writing of the book where uh, my husband turns to me about something minor and domestic and says, "I'll take care of it." And right after that, I write, "This is a part of our marriage, something I love and long to believe," <laughs> which always gets a laugh. It's like I long to believe. Who who doesn't long to believe somebody saying to you? I'll take care of it. Right. I'm believing them. Um, it became a motif in the book. And I kept on thinking as I was writing, what is this motif about? And near, not near the end, but I'd say in the last third of the book or so of writing it, there was a moment where he was sleeping. It was, we, I was up late, wide awake. And it was, I think, a challenging moment. He's a screenwriter and a project of his had just fallen apart. And or was about to fall apart, or I was concerned about it. And I looked at him sleeping, and the words that went through my mind were, I'll take care of it. And at that moment, I really felt like I understood something about us, and maybe even I understood something about marriage, 
that back and forth um, uh, between two people over time of, well, in a way, it's the quicksand, right? Right. I can I can pull us back. I can pull you back, and I can pull us back from that abyss. Um, and then you keep on do that. walking along, and then the abyss is on the other side. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, okay, now you now can can you? I hope no. And 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 it seems like a place where couples get into a lot of trouble is when neither one can. Right. Yeah. Um, is that also the moment of the memoir where the "I'll take care of it" is? in question because financially there is some uncertainty. I mean, that I have to say that's w- one of the moments where um, I thought, the, you know, I never, how do I want to put this to you? It's one of the moments of the memoir where I thought they're going through, this makes this memoir very real. I really... I feel like this is a revealing thing about their characters, but I'm worried for them. That's that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. That was that was such a scary passage to write. I know exactly the one you're talking about, uh, where we go see a, a couples therapist, um, and um, I, I think this is what you're talking about. And uh, my husband, who had been in the middle of making uh, an independent film, and things where stakes were really high. He was really rolling the dice. I mean, anyone who knows anything about independent film knows that that's kind of how those movies get made. And he was making it. It was the year his hair literally turned white. Um, there was a lot of stress. And he uh, let our health insurance lapse. And um, and he didn't tell me. And so we were walking around briefly uninsured. <laughs> and I have to tell you, Carrie, I um, I didn't want to put that in the book. I wrote that passage. The, the passage begins, um, Em and I go see a couples therapist. And then what I tried to get away with for a while was 18 years. A lot happens over the course of 18 years. Uh-huh. And then I just sailed right along. And there was, uh, there was a moment that I, that I, that I include in the book where, um, where my husband turned to me. We were in an airport and we were about to each fly in separate directions. And he said to me, you know, your book is really good. You're doing really good work. And he's he's not big on compliments, so I was really reveling in that and taking that in. And he said, I do have one note, though. <laughs> so then I girded myself. <laughs> and he said, I'm an okay guy, but you're not being hard enough on me. And at that moment, a few things happened. One is, I knew he was right. Not, you know, about the okay guy part or about the, you know, the book uh, being whatever, but but the part about I was being too careful. I was being circumspect, and circumspect does not make for good literature, ever. Um, and he was also giving me permission to go further. And I believe that the next passage in the book is the couples therapy passage. It was already there, but I was trying to get away with um, glossing over that. And I had to tell the truth of that moment. And that was the truth of that moment. Um, the truth of that moment was that I felt he had put our family, I didn't feel he had put our family in jeopardy. He had put our family in jeopardy. Um, and I had to go there and I had to write that. Um, but also part of what I was trying to do throughout the book was write about what it is to be a couple of artists, Mm -hmm. you know, making our way together. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't marry, you know, the rich guy. I didn't marry the, 
um, investment banker. I didn't, um, I, I made a different choice. And one of the things that I thought a lot about while I was writing the book is you change one thing and everything changes. There's a passage pretty far into the book where I begin it, I think, with, um, here are some things that won't happen. Um, we, you know, we won't have a compound where our grandchildren, you know, roast s'mores and play badminton or whatever they do at family compounds. Um, my husband won't work for the World Bank or CIA, both of which were opportunities that he had. Um, I will not become a rabbi or a psychoanalyst, which are the two things that I would have done if I hadn't been a writer. I think the huh. only the only two things I've ever been able to imagine being other than a writer. But there's this passage about that. And the thing that it really had me thinking about is the wisdom of the idea that you can't change one thing. I don't get to be married to my husband with everything that he is to me and have him have a really hefty bank account. I don't get to have that because he's not that guy. So would I like that and everything else? Yeah, but I don't get to have that. We don't, <laughs> we don't get to change one trait. Um, and there's something he said to me fairly recently, actually. He is in the process of putting together a new film. And it seems like it's going to be shooting at the end of the summer. And it's it's interesting because that film, that very film with the famous comedian, was um, threaded all throughout Hourglass. Like, it's happening. It's not happening. Right. The manager says You mean the this. film that he's about to make? The film that he's about to oh. make is that film. It has a completely different cast, um, even better than the famous comedian. And it's, and it's about to shoot. Wow. Supposedly. Because it's independent film. It can always fall apart. But... One day he was standing in the kitchen just scrambling eggs and I walked in and he said, I just want to say something to you. I don't wish that I was waiting to find out what my year-end bonus is going to be. Would I like to have a year-end bonus? Sure. But I don't wish that I was doing that. I am so alive right now doing what I'm doing and I'm um, willing to tolerate the risk of that. Um, and that's not exactly how he put it. But that was really for us. I mean, if there's quicksand, the quicksand has been in that area of risk, that right. area of, um, of you know, are we going to somehow be okay? What, what did you say when he said that? I felt relieved because I think what would be worst for me is his feeling like he had missed the mark, that he wasn't doing... I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked about is he had been a foreign correspondent. Mm -hmm. um, he was a war correspondent, and he was extremely successful at it. And he stopped being a war correspondent because we got married. And so um, I would really hate to feel like he left the thing that was his calling in life to be with me and has, in at this point in his life, felt diminished by that. And what he was saying to me, it was really a gift. He was saying, I don't feel diminished. I feel like I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. He's also extremely good at it. It's just a very, it's a very hard, it's a very hard life. It makes being a novelist and, me and a memoirist look absolutely stable <laughs> by comparison. What happened to the Janis Joplin film? Ah, uh, well, That's obviously not the film. Oh, no, that is not the film. But that was such a, that was such a, painful missed opportunity because it was um, it was a project that had been in the works for many years at the point. I don't name names in the book, but I'm perfectly happy to. I just don't name names because, again, I didn't want names in the book. It was such a delicate book. I wanted it to be, um, like, to, ha to reflect that. Um, but Milos Forman was supposed to direct it. 
It would have been Milos's last film. I mean, he's still alive, but he's not making films anymore. Um, Zoe Deschanel was attached to play Janice, and she has an extraordinary voice. I still have a garage tape Zoe made somewhere, you know, doing Janis Joplin. She was amazing. Michael was um, writing the script, and it was and it fell apart over rights. It fell apart over over the fact that there had been the music rights tied up for so many years. And so when the money came in, actually the producers um, who were bringing in the new money um, pretty much said, "But but um, but." We need oh, an old an old producer who had put up the money said, "Well, I m- first money out for me," and so the new producers basically said, "Well, we're not we're not putting money into this film so that you can then take it out," and it and it fell apart. In the way that these things almost invariably do, it's a miracle when a great film gets made, when any film gets made, but a miracle when a really good one does. So when you hear that Janis Joplin song, "Me and Bobby McGee," what what does it remind you of? Is it painful or is it? Well, I include some of the lyrics in the book, right, which ironically I had to pay a significant amount for the rights to. <laughs> well, then <laughs> I, I think like, well, we better play the song <laughs> going out of this interview. Oh, excellent. I but, love that. Well, what does it remind you of? Um, it was also, it was the moment, it wasn't so much even the lyrics themselves as it was this moment where Michael and I were sitting at a benefit and this was, you know, this had was recently a project that had fallen apart and there was Chris Christopherson, who was an old man, you know. I mean, I had such a crush on him when I was... Who didn't? I mean, my God, he's still sexy. Um, but there <laughs> Wait, he, is he 80? He's in his 80s, and he's, <laughs> he's, and he's, and he's quite frail, incredible. and he had to be helped on with the guitar, and he, he sang it, and it was gorgeous. And, you know, I was like 10 feet away from him and swooning. But there was also... It was, it was so bittersweet, because he was, you know, he's, he's, he, he was elderly, and... And he inserted, he was singing the song, and he inserted Janice's name at a certain moment. And um, and then I read somewhere later that he always does that when he sings it live, um, that that he remains um, that connected to her, despite how many years it's been since uh, since her death and since um, and since they weren't together. But I suppose what that means to me is something about the enduring power of um, of love and connection, even though very unfortunate and messed up in a lot of ways. Danny, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a great conversation. That's memoirist Danny Shapiro. Her latest memoir is called Hourglass, Time, Memory, Marriage. Faded as my Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained, and rode us all the way into New Orleans.